Chapter 3 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Ficklin. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Cable Chatterton. Chapter 3. Piracy in the Early Tudor Times. The kind of man who devotes his life to robbery at sea is not the species of humanity who readily subjects himself to laws and ordinances. You may threaten him with terrible punishments, but it is not by these means that you will break his spirit. He is like the gypsy or the vagrant. He has in him an overwhelming longing for wandering and adventure. It is not so much the greed for gain which prompts the pirate, any more than the land tramp finds his long march inspired by wealth. But some impelling blind force is at work within, and so not all the treaties and agreements, not all the menaces of death could avail to keep these men from pursuing the occupation which their fathers and grandfathers had for so many years been employed in. Therefore, piracy was quite as bad in the 16th century as it had been in the Middle Ages. The dwellers on either side of the English Channel were ever ready to pillage each other's ships and property. About the first and second decade of the 16th century, the Scots rose to some importance in the art of sea robbery, and some were promptly taken and executed. In vain did Henry VIII write to Francis I, saying that complaints had been made by English merchants that their ships had been pirated by Frenchmen pretending to be Scots, for which redress could not be obtained in France. In 1581 matters had become so bad, and piracy was so prevalent, that commissioners were appointed to make inquisitions concerning this illegal warfare around our coasts. Viscount Lyle, vice-admiral of England, and others were appointed to see to the problem. So cunning had these rovers become that it was no easy affair to capture them. But in this same year, a notorious pirate named Kelwanton was taken in the Isle of Man, while another, de Melton by name, who was one of his accomplices, fled with the rest of the crew and ship to Grimsby. Sometimes the very ships which had been sent by the king against the pirates actually engaged in pillaging themselves. There was at least one instance about this time of some royal ships being unable to resist the temptation to plunder the richly laden Flemish ships. But after complaint was made, the royal reply came that the Flemings should be compensated, and the plunderers punished. It was all very well to set a thief to catch a thief, but there were few English seamen of any experience who had not done some piracy at some time of their career, and when they at last formed the crews of preventative ships, and got wearied of waiting for pirate craft to come along, it was too much to expect them to remain idle on the seas when a rich merchantman went sailing past. Sometimes the pirates would waylay a whole merchant fleet, and if the latter were sailing light, would relieve the fleet of their victuals, their clothes, their anchors, cables, and sails. But it was not merely to the North Sea, nor to the English Channel, that the English pirates confined themselves. In October 1533, they captured a Biscayan ship off the coast of Ireland, and during the reign of Henry VIII there was an interesting incident connected with a ship named the Santa Maria de Sai. This craft belonged to one Peter Alvis, a Portingale, who hired a mariner, William Phelip, to pilot a ship from Tenby to Bastabille Haven. But whilst off the Welsh coast, a piratical bark named the Fertescoese, containing 35 desperate corsairs, attacked the Santa Maria and completely overpowered her. Alvis they promptly got rid of by putting him somewhere on the Welsh coast, and then they proceeded to sail the ship to Cork, where they sold her to the mayor and others, the value of the captured craft and goods being 1,524 crowns. Alvis did not take this assault with any resignation, but naturally used his best endeavors to have the matter set right. From the king's council he obtained a command to the mayor of Cork for restitution. But such was the lawlessness of the time that this was of no avail. The mayor, whose name was Richard Gawillies, protested that the pirates had told him that they captured the ship from the Scots and not from the Portingale, and he added that he would spend 100 pounds rather than make a restitution. 
but stricter vigilance caused the arrest of some of these pirates. Six of them were sentenced to death in the Admiralty Court of Boulogne. Eleven others were condemned to death in the Guildhall, London. And in 1537, a ship was lying at Winchelsea engaged to Bell the Mayor for 35 pounds for the piracies committed in her, for she had been captured after having robbed a Gascon merchantman of a cargo of wines. The finest of the French sailors for many a century until even the present day have ever been the Bretons. And just as in the 18th century the most expert sailormen on our coasts are the greatest smugglers, so in Tudor times the pick of all seamen were sea rovers. About the time of Lent, 1537, a couple of Breton pirate ships caused a great deal of anxiety to our west countrymen. One of the two had robbed an English ship off the Cornish coast and pillaged his cargo of wine. From Easter time till August, these rovers hung about the Welsh coast, sometimes coming ashore for provisions and most probably also to sell their ill-gotten cargoes, but for the most part remaining at sea. It would seem from the historical records that originally there had only been one Breton ship that had sailed from St. Malo, but having the good fortune to capture a fishing craft belonging to Milford Haven, the crew had been split up into two. Presently the number of these French pirates increased until there was quite a fleet of them cruising about the Welsh coast. A merchant ship that had loaded a fine cargo at Bristol, bound across the Bay of Biscay, had been boarded before the voyage had little more than begun. For week after week these men robbed every ship that came past them. But especially were they biding their time waiting for the English, Irish, and Welsh ships who were wont about this period of year to come to St. James Fair at Bristol. However, in the meanwhile, the men of the West were becoming much more alert, and were ready for any chance that might occur. And a Bristol man named Bowen, after fourteen Breton pirates had already come ashore near Tenby to obtain victuals, acted with such smartness that he was able to have the whole lot captured and put into prison. And John Winter, another Bristolian, knowing that the pirates were hovering about for those ships bound to the fair, promptly manned a ship, embarked fifty soldiers, as well as able seamen, and cruised about ready to swoop down on the first pirate ship which showed up on the horizon. The full details of these men and what they did would make interesting reading if they were obtainable, but we know that of the above-mentioned fourteen, one, Jean du Corac, was captain of the Breton craft. On being arrested, he stoutly denied that he'd ever spoiled English ships. That was most certainly a barefaced lie, and presently Peter Dromui, one of his own mariners, confessed that he himself had robbed one Englishman, whereupon Corac made a confession that as a matter of fact he had taken ship's ropes, sailors wearing apparel, five pieces of wine, a quantity of fish, a gold crown and money, and eleven silver halfpence or pence, as well as four daggers and a couverture. It was because the English merchants complained that they lost so much of their imports and exports by depredations from the ships of war belonging to Biscay, Spain, the Low Countries, Normandy, Brittany, and elsewhere, that Henry VIII had been prevailed upon to send Sir John Dudley, his vice-admiral, to sea with a small fleet of good ships. Dudley's orders were to cruise between the Downs on the east and St. Michael's Mount on the west, in other words, the whole length of the English Channel, according as the wind should serve. In addition, he was to stand off and on between Ushant and Skelly, and so guard the entrance to the Channel. Furthermore, he was to look in at the Isle of Lundy in the Bristol Channel, for both Lundy and the Skillies were famous pirate haunts, and after having done so, he was to return and keep the narrow seas. Dudley was especially admonished to be on the lookout to secure any English merchant ships, and should he meet with any foreign merchant craft which, under the pretense of trading, were actually robbing the king's subjects, he was to have these foreigners treated as absolute pirates, and punished accordingly. For the state of piracy had become so bad that the king can no longer suffer it. So also Sir Thomas Dudley, as well as Sir John, were busily employed in the same preventative work. 
On the 10th of August of that same year, 1537, he wrote to Cromwell that he had at Harwich arrested a couple of Frenchmen who two years previously had robbed a poor English skipper's craft off the coast of Normandy, and this Englishman had in vain sued in France for a remedy, since the pirates could never be captured. But there were so many of these corsairs being now taken that it was a grave problem as to how they should be dealt with. If they were all committed to ward, wrote Sir Thomas, as your letters direct, they would fill the jail. Then he adds, they would fain go and leave the ship behind them, which only contains ordnance and no goods or victuals to find themselves with. If they go to jail, they are likely to perish for hunger, for Englishmen will do no charity to them. They are as proud knaves as I have ever talked with. Eleven days later came the report from Sir John Dudley of his experiences in the Channel. He stated that while on his way home he encountered a couple of Breton ships in the vicinity of St. Helens, Isle of Wight, where he believed they were lying in wait for two Cornish ships that were within Portchamont Haven, laden with tin to the value of 3,000 pounds. Portsmouth is, of course, just opposite St. Helens, and on more than one occasion in naval history was the latter found a convenient anchorage by hostile ships waiting for English craft to issue forth from the mainland. But when these Breton pirates espied Dudley's ships coming along under sail, they made in with the Portsmouth, where Dudley's men promptly boarded them and placed them under arrest, with the intention of bringing them presently to the Thames. Dudley had no doubt, whatever, that these were pirates, but at a later date the French ambassador endeavored to show that there was no foundation for such a suspicion. These two French crafts, he sought to persuade, were genuine merchantmen who had discharged their cargo at St. Wallery's, that is to say St. Valerie's or Somme, but had been driven to the Isle of Wight by bad weather, adding doubtless as a subtle hint that they had actually rescued an Englishman chased by a Spaniard. It is possible that the Frenchmen were telling the truth, though unless the wind had come southerly and so made it impossible for these bluff-bowed craft to beat into the port, it is difficult to believe that they could not have run into one of their own havens. At any rate, it was a yarn which Dudley's sailors found not easy to accept. This was no isolated instance of the capture of Breton craft. In the year 1532, a Breton ship named the Michelle, whose owner was one Haman Gillard, her master being Nicholas Barb of St. Malo, was encountered by a crew of English seamen who entertained no doubts whatsoever as to her being anything else than a pirate. Their suspicions were made doubly sure, when they found her company to consist of nine Bretons and five Scots. They arrested her at sea, and when examined she was found well laden with wool, cloth, and salt hides. Some French pirate ships even went so far as to wear the English flag of St. George, with the Red Cross on a white ground. This not unnaturally infuriated English seamen, especially when it was discovered that the Bretons had also carried Englishmen as their pilots and chief mariners, and were training them to become experts in piracy. But there were times when the English seamen and merchants were able to get their own back with interest, as the following incident will show. At the beginning of June in the year 1538, an English merchant, Henry Davy, freighted a London ship named the Clement, which was owned by one Greenberry, who lived in Thames Street, and dispatched her with orders to proceed to the Bay in Brittany. She set forth under the command of a man named Lilac, the ship's purser being William Scarlet, a London cloth worker. Seven men formed her crew, but when off Margate they took on board nine more. They then proceeded down channel, and took on board another four from the shore, but espying a Flemish ship of war, they deemed it prudent to get hold of the coast of Normandy as soon as possible. In the main sea, by which I understand the English channel near the mainland of the continent, they described coming over the waves three ships, and these were found to be Breton merchantmen. This caused some discussion on board of the Clement, and Davy, the charterer who had come aboard the ship, remarked to the skipper Lilac that they had lost as much as sixty pounds in goods, which had been captured by Breton pirates at an earlier date, and had never been able to obtain compensation in France in spite of all their endeavors. 
Anyone who has any imagination and a knowledge of seafaring human nature can easily picture Lilac and his crew cordially agreeing with Davy's point of view, and showing more than a mere passive sympathy. The upshot of the discussion was that they resolved to take the law into their own hands and capture one of these three ships. The resolution was put into effect, so that before long they had become possessed of the craft. The Breton crew were rowed ashore in a boat and left there, and after collecting the goods left behind, the Englishmen stowed them in the hold of the Clement. A prize crew, consisting of a man whose name was Cornelis, and four seamen, were placed in charge of the captured ship, which now got underway. The Clement, too, resumed her voyage, and made for Perrin in Cornwall, where she was able to sell, at a good price, the goods taken out of the Breton. The gross amount obtained was divided up among the captors, and though the figures may not seem very large, yet the sum represented the equivalent of what would be today about ten times that amount of money. Henry Davy, being the charterer, received seventeen pounds. The master, the mate, the quartermaster, and the purser received each thirty shillings, while the mariners got twenty shillings apiece. Lilac and nine of the crew then departed, while Davy, Scarlet, Leverett the carpenter, and two others got the ship underway, sailed up channel, and brought the Clement back to the Thames, where they delivered her to the wife of the owner. But Englishmen were not always so fortunate, and the North Sea pirates were still active, in spite of the efforts which had been made by the English kings in previous centuries. In 1538, the cargo ship George Modi put to sea with goods belonging to a company of English merchant adventurers, consisting of Sir Ralph Warren, good Mr. Locke, and Roland Hill, among others. She never reached her port of destination, however, for the Norwegian pirates pillaged her and caused a loss to the adventurers of 10,000 pounds, whereupon, after complaint had been made, Cromwell was invoked to obtain letters from Henry VIII to the kings of Denmark, France, and Scotland that search might be duly made. There was, in fact, a good deal of luck, even yet, as to whether a ship would ever get to harbor, whither she was sent. In September 1538, we find Walter Herbert complaining that, twice since Candlemas, he has been robbed by Breton pirates. But a week later, it is recorded that some pirates, who had robbed peaceful ships bound from Iceland, had been chased by John Chatterton and others of Portsmouth and captured about this time. And it was not always that Englishmen dealt with these foreigners in any merciful manner, regardless of right or wrong. I have already emphasized the fact that, as regards to the question of legality, there was little to choose between the seamen of any maritime nation. Rather, it was a question of opportunity, and the very men who today complain bitterly of the robbery of their ships and cargoes might tomorrow be found performing piracy themselves. A kind of sea vendetta went on, and in the minds of the mariners the only sin was that of being found out. So we noticed that, in the spring of 1539, an instance of a Breton ship being captured by English corsairs who, according to the recognized custom of the sea, forthwith threw overboard the French sailors. These were all drowned except one who, as if by miracle, swam six miles to shore. So says the ancient record, though it is difficult to believe that even a strong swimmer could last so long after being badly knocked about. The Bretons had their revenge this time, for complaint was made to the chief justices, who within fifteen days had the culprits arrested and condemned, and six of them were executed on the 19th of May. Before the end of the month, Francis I wrote to thank the English king for so promptly dealing with these culprits. Bearing in mind the interest which Henry VIII took in nautical matters, and in the welfare of his country generally, recollecting too the determination with which he pursued any project to the end when once his mind had been made up, we need not be surprised to find that a few months later in this year, this resolute monarch again sent ships, this time a couple of barks of 120 and 90 tons respectively, well manned and ordnanced, to scour the seas for these pirate pests that inflicted so many serious losses on the Tudor merchants. A little earlier in that year, Vaughan had written to Cromwell that he had spoken with one who had lately been a common passenger, in hoys between London and Antwerp, and knew of certain pirates who intended to capture the merchant ships plying between these two ports. 
Valuable warning was given concerning one of these roving craft. She belonged to Hans von Meglin, who had fitted out a ship of portage of 20 lasts and 45 tons burthen. She was manned by a crew of 30. Her hull was painted black with pitch. She had no forespirit, and her foremast leaned forward like a loadman's boat. Loadman was the old word for pilot, the man who hove the lead. Cromwell was advised that this craft would proceed first to Oxfordness, the natural landfall for a vessel to make when bound across the North Sea from the Shelda, and then she would proceed south and lie in wait for ships at the mouth of the Thames. In order to be ready to pillage either the inward or outward-bound craft which traded with London, this pirate would hover about off the white staple, Whitstable. Vaughan's informant thought that sometimes, however, she would change her locality to the Melton Shore, in order to avoid suspicion, and he advised that it would be best to capture her by means of three or four well-manned oyster boats. There was also another Easterling, that is, one from the east of Germany or the Baltic, pirate, who had received his commission from the grave of Odenburg. This rover was named Francis Beam, and was now at Canfire with his ship waiting for the grave of Odenburg's return from Brussels with money. But the warning news came in time, and in order to prevent the English merchant ships from falling into the sea rover's hands, the former were ordered by proclamation to remain in Antwerp, from Ash Wednesday till Easter. End of chapter 3. Recording by Dan Ficklin.